If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. It is the question that has rocked humanity for a millennia, the conundrum that has confounded scientists, philosophers, politicians, artists, and everyone in between. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And here we find ourselves in need of help from the world's greatest thinkers to help settle this issue once and for all. To ask whether we're looking at life in the wrong way, we're joined remotely by three leading thinkers. Legendary American philosopher Daniel Dennett, astrobiologist and famed science communicator Sarah Walker, and evolutionary and revolutionary biochemist Professor Nick Lane. I think most of the issue is that we've been really focused on trying to understand what the definition of life is that we're trying to solve. And I think that's a big part of the problem that really hasn't entered into considerations about these very hypotheses. They're not really, they're making statements about some aspects of life, but not encompassing in the way that Nick was saying of like the origin and all of evolution of life. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Ganesh Taylor. So, can we see how we might put together a credible theory on the origin of life? And does it answer the question about the chicken and the egg, importantly? Let's let's start with Nick. Why not? Nick, you're up. Okay. Yes. All right. Um... So I, I, I don't really understand the question of the chicken and the egg, I have to say. Um, I think biology itself answered that long ago uh, insofar as eggs go right back to single-celled organisms, not the chicken's egg, but the, the idea of an egg of two sexes and so on. And that really encapsulates the idea of evolutionary change over time um, and, and, and how things can evolve. Uh, and, and I would... You, 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 you kind of slightly dismissed biology uh, as, as a question at the origin of life uh, in your introduction. Strangely, it seems to me, the biologists have been the group who have had less to say about the origin of life. I would say as a field, it's been dominated by chemists over the last 50 or 60 years. It's a question that goes right across science, of course, or pretty much every discipline you can think of plays a major role in trying to understand the origin of life. But... Um, it's not a single reaction. It's a tremendously long <laughs> uh, 
distance from prebiotic chemistry, from the simplest stirrings of chemistry to a bacterial cell with, with uh, molecular machines and genes and so on. And so, you know, we still need to understand that long continuum with the same kind of reasoning that uh, answers the chicken and the egg question, which is to say, how does one thing lead to another? How does it change? How does it evolve over time? I actually do think we have a credible theory already for the <coughs> life. Maybe theory is too strong a word for it. I think we have a, a, lot, of, a lot of hypotheses. Uh, I personally think that I can probably get my head around how things happened, but what's lacking is strong evidence for that. And so it doesn't become a scientific theory until we've a, we're able to say, okay, this step leads to this step and we do the entire continuum and we prove in the lab that each step can work and then we have a credible theory. It doesn't prove that's how life started, but it proves we can understand how a sterile planet can give rise to life. So I think we can answer it already in principle, if not in practice. Brilliant. Well, thanks for that, Nick. I mean, Dan, what, what are your thoughts? Can we, can we put together a credible theory? Uh, yes, we can. Um, uh, it, it's actually not the philosopher's job to come up with these theories. It's a, it's a job for science. And right now, there's, a, it's a, there's an embarrassment of riches. We have more hypotheses out there than, than, than we can even test at the moment. Um, and uh, as Nick said, it, from prebiotic chemistry to actual reproducing simple organisms, that, that's a long stretch. And we, every, every year, every month, uh, pieces of how it must have gone or might have gone uh, get clearer. Uh, what fascinates me about it is that if you, I as an outsider, as a philosopher reading this work, I'm delighted to see the extent to which people not only admit that life is machinery, they use the word mm -hmm. machine, they describe ribosomes and, and mitochondria as these wonderful machines, they are. As I like to say, we're robots made of robots made of robots <laughs> made of robots. And, and the reason it's been only recently, I think, that uh, people have been able to make real progress on these questions is thanks to 20th century pioneers, we now have disciplined ways of thinking about machines with billions or trillions of parts. And Descartes couldn't think that thought. Uh, Aristotle couldn't think that thought. Now we are unleashed to imagine a machine with a trillion working parts. And we can do it with some, with some discipline. And that's where, that's where the action is. Sarah, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on this, on this question? 
I think most of the issue is that we've been really focused on trying to understand what the definition of life is that we're trying to solve. And I think that's a big part of the problem that really hasn't entered into considerations about these very hypotheses. They're not really, they're making statements about some aspects of life, but not encompassing in the way that Nick was saying of like the origin and all of evolution of life. Um, and so when I think about this problem, I think of what level of description is a theory of life going to be um, and what level of explanation are we asking for? Um, and just to give sort of analogy, because um, my background's in physics, I think of sort of current frameworks for thinking about life sort of like at the epicycle phase of development of understanding gravity. So like several thousand years ago, you know, we had predictive and descriptive models that were adequate for the time and adequate for the observations that we could take. And it took, you know, 1500 years for um, physics to emerge as a discipline and, and Galileo and Newton to actually unify terrestrial and celestial motion and realize that there was an underlying explanation that we call gravity for those motions. And then Einstein to actually realize that the properties of gravity um, were derived from from the curvature of space-time, and um, you know, this, from this very different phenomena about the physics of light, right? So, um, so I'm using this as an analogy for what we need to do in talking about life, because I think the magnitude of the problem is actually much deeper in terms of our descriptions of the physical world and how we understand it than people give it credit for. And most of the time, when I hear discussions about origins of life, they're kind of in the epicycle phase, and we're not asking these deeper questions about why is it our current physics theories can't account for all of the richness that we see in life and they're not explanatory of what we see in life. It doesn't mean those theories are wrong, they're right in the domains they were developed for, but it might be that we need new physical principles and new laws of nature to actually describe life. And just as an example in reference to the chicken and egg problem, there is a chicken and egg problem in physics, which is that in the time of Newton, when he came up with the idea of physics that, that most of physics is built on now, he built physics thinking that there were dynamical laws that existed outside of the universe and outside of time and they were immutable and that requires an initial state for the universe that you have to specify or any dynamical system you want to study. In biology that gets really tangled because we have this kind of effect in living systems where it looks like the rules depend on the systems that exist. They depend on the actual things that are there. So um, it's a very different kind of system and in some way you could think about the law depending on the state. Um, and so they're actually not not separable. Um, and this is sort of one of the issues, the chicken and the egg. Um, in physics, we have laws and states. In biology, they're actually the same thing. I specify my dynamics as a, a, a living system. I can move about and I have, you know, causal efficacy and things. So, um, so I think really the, the underlying issue is what kind of explanatory theory do we need to account for life and how much of our current understanding is going to be reinvented by coming up with this theory and really thinking about life as a real phenomenon that exists in the universe and needs explanation. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's a really great overview to, to this problem the three of you have given me. Um, so I want to move on to the sort of first theme of this debate and I kind of reel it a little bit back, I guess. Um, and, you know, before we, we get into the sort of details of how life originated, it would, you know, I think we would do really well to clarify, you know, what is, what actually is this thing called life that we're trying to investigate in the first place, you know, and what makes it so interesting? So, you know, yeah, Nick, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think uh, in relation to what Sarah's just been saying, there's, there's two ways of asking the question, I suppose. One of them is um, is thinking about, life as a as a possibility what what are the what are the i suppose the defining principles 
uh, that would govern life anywhere in the universe. And then there's another one, which is a bit more prosaic, which I tend to follow, which is to say, well, what is, what is life as, as we know it on Earth, and how do we explain that? Um, and then, you, you, you know, you're faced with the same question in, in many respects, which is to say, we can't agree between ourselves about what environment life might have started on, and therefore what, the, what this order of steps might be. When I say we can't agree among ourselves, I mean scientists working on, on the origin of life. Um, now, it may very well be that the answer is a mixture of these things, uh, or that we simply don't know it yet, or that it's one of these things and someone's <coughs> right and everyone else is wrong. We, we don't know any of that at the moment. Um, but I think really the question is, can we have a coherent hypothesis? And can we explain everything that we know about life step by step? And so a place where Sarah and I would perhaps disagree would be about whether there's a requirement for, for uh, some new understanding of physics to explain the origin of information in biology. Um, now, to me, information in biology is coming from genes. Um, and you can, you can have a random sequence of DNA, and that random sequence of DNA becomes associated with an outcome in the end, and it's selected for. Um, and so the question is, well, how does that get going before you have any genes? Uh, and I think the, the answer is, well, you have to remember that genes are not the only thing which is being selected. Um, cells are being selected, and the effects of genes depend on their context. And so if you think about what kind of system can give rise to, let's say, replicating protocells, where random bits of, let's say, RNA, you can call it DNA, whatever you want, random code appears in these protocells, then the question is, well, what good does it do? Uh, and the answer is, well, if that random code is associated with some kind of function that's a benefit to the protocells or detrimental to them, then we immediately have selection as we know it and the entire problem has gone away because information arises with the context. So does that necessarily apply anywhere? My feeling is it probably does. And therefore, um, I don't think in principle there's a requirement for rethinking physics. Now, there's probably lots of reasons to rethink physics and, and I don't doubt for a moment that they will have a huge impact on biology. But the question is for me now, is it possible using the current framework for us to understand, in principle, how things could happen? And I, I would say the answer is yes, but, but it requires proof at every step of the way. Otherwise, the answer turns into no. And I'm certainly not going to say I'm right and I think this is all going to happen. It may very well disprove me. My own students disprove me in the lab every day. Uh, and it's, that's one of the great things about science. It leaves you feeling pretty meek. Um, but, but I, you know, it also leaves you asking, I, I think, the questions that we can grapple with. Okay. I have a question. Can I ask a question from Nick about what you're saying? Um, because it's something that always kind of bothers me about this sort of construction of if we can do every step of the way, it doesn't mean that nature can do all those steps without you as an agent designing the experiments. So how in your mind do you think about, you know, if I prove this step and then I prove this step and then I prove this step, making the argument that all of them could happen under the appropriate conditions on the early earth without having start you know from the simple ingredients and run the whole experiment because you're condi you're controlling the boundary conditions at sure, each step yes. i mean how do you think about that from your perspective um i, I think that the the way it actually happened on earth i assume it happened on earth uh, yeah. is you know I, I imagine life starting in hydrothermal vents on the sea floor and i imagine the entire sea floor covered with hydrothermal vents and i imagine these processes going on continuously for millions of years 
I don't know how long is needed. I suspect not millions of years, but um, I can't do that in the lab. Um, I can't, you know, so I have to have boundary conditions. I have to have experiments that we can do. We have a limited budget, limited time, limited ability to think about these things. So yes, it may all turn, you know, I don't think we can ever know how life started because that's, if you like, a historical question, but I think we can understand in principle how it could happen with the proviso that we're putting in these boundary conditions. But the boundary conditions, you have to select them to represent as well as you can a particular environment and a particular set of circumstances. And you can't have one step being contradicted by the, the next step in terms of the boundary conditions. They must be consistent throughout or explicable throughout. Yeah. So just, just to clarify then, so basically what you two are sort of saying is that, you know, while you can't ever sort of replicate the entire process of life what you're saying is you can we have hypotheses about these sort of key phases and thus we can do sort of controlled experiments right that might be another way of talking about this boundary thing that you're talking about to sort of test the valid potential validity of the hypothesis that you hold about this progression is that am i getting that right Nick? yeah yeah an interesting thing that nick said just in passing is that um he assumes that life began on earth and of course, that's in one sense a major assumption. It might very well be that the panspermia hypothesis is true. Life began somewhere else and just arrived here. After all, we could presumably now seed life onto some lifeless planet. And if they ever uh, developed, evolved scientists there, if they thought, well, it must have started here, they'd be just wrong. Uh, and it's, I think, an interesting case of, of, of looking uh, under the lamppost. We better hope that life started here because then at least we have some chance yeah. of knowing what the conditions were uh, from leftover uh, evidence about what the conditions were uh, uh, on Earth over, over you know, four, four or five billion years. Uh, uh, if it started somewhere else and landed here, much, much harder problem for us to make progress on. Uh, I think, though, that um, to me, the key thing that's happening right now, what's exciting to me, is that a, a divorce that started about, well, let's see, 70 years ago, is, is now uh, uh, things are coming back together. Um, uh, Shannon, with his theory of information, uh, sort of put energy off to the side mm -hmm. and said, let's not worry about energy. Uh, let's just worry about information. And many people saw this is a great idea. Let's, let's just leave the energy out of it and look around. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do this today, what we're doing, if it weren't for Shannon and the divorce of energy uh, and information. Uh, but as a number of thinkers, more and more I keep discovering other people who are thinking along these lines, Nick being one of them, is uh, no, you've got to bring energy in early. And, you, and that was a great uh, ladder to climb the Shannon information ladder. But until we understand energy and the role of energy in life, uh, we're not going to get it right. And uh, 
the way I'm thinking about this now, uh, the some of the things that people say in cognitive science tend to take for granted are artifacts of that oversimplification of Shannon's. And that once we try to reintroduce the energetic demands, the dynamics into our models, we find that we've been looking in the wrong part of, of design space. We've been looking in a region uh, where digital computers exist, mm. but it's not a region where life exists. So we're going to have to put those two ideas together. Really interesting. I, I feel like that's sort of harking back to something that Sarah was saying at the start of this, this yeah. conversation about, you know, there's, there's the context under which something works and, you know, resonates with me as a biologist because of the difference between watching something when it's, for example, been frozen down and looked at under a microscope versus watching it dynamically in life interacting, right? You can make all kinds of hypotheses about the function of something that you see when it's stationary versus, you know, that could be quite different once you, you see it in action. I mean, Sarah, what are, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, there were so many good points raised. I actually have four things I want to say um, in response. Um, and the first one is just on the point of Shannon's theory of information, which I think is very powerful, but there's, a, you know, obviously a lot of discussion in literature about how it's inadequate in a lot of ways for talking about life and what information is in life. And I think part of the problem with discussing information in life is we don't always know exactly what we mean by that term. So even when I say life is the physics of information, it's very unclear to people what I mean by that because there's misconceptions about what the nature of information is. And two things that Shannon's information theory doesn't account for um, are meaning in biology, that information means something. Um, I would think about that in terms of has a cause, but um, or is a cause for something. And the other one is um, that it doesn't have any notion of memory. Um, and so, so there's a, there, you could go through a whole list of, of flaws of like the concepts of information that Shannon brought into it. And I do think Dan's point about energy being important in its relation to information is important. Um, and a lot of that literature is coming out of non-equilibrium thermodynamics where people want to have sort of a thermodynamic description of life. And I think that's useful. And I certainly think that life is a very interesting non-equilibrium phenomenon. But there is this sort of thing that if you look at life writ large across the board, um, life does special things with all of the laws of physics, not just thermodynamics. So we have gravitaxis as a behavior where life responds to gravity. There's um, you know, quantum effects in cells and nobody really tries to use those as explanations for life. You, you know, they're just the way the, phys the universe works. And of course, life is gonna have to use the way the universe works to exist in the first place. So I find them kind of, um, you know, getting partway there in an explanation, but they're not really explaining the whole picture. Um, and there are a lot of things that life does that aren't fully explained by those in one way or another. And part of that comes to the point that, that Nick was talking about, where he's looking at this very mechanistic understanding of the chemical steps and the origins of life and trying to control for the boundary conditions. Um, and when I'm talking, I think we're talking slightly about a different problem, um, because I think within the boundary constraints that he's asking, he can ask very concrete questions. But the question that I'm interested in is not just explaining the origins of life, but explaining why we're sitting here on Zoom right now having this conversation, because they're part of the same lineage of information from when information first emerged at the origin of life and has been propagating across space and time on our planet since. Um, and that's a much different kind of framing of the question. Do, may, may I ask, do you see a problem yeah. with information in biology as we know biology? 
I do. I see a problem. Like I, ju- I just don't think there's a, there's a way of reconciling it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that it's wrong. I just think it's not explanatory. Like you. Um, so I, I would like to be able to derive it from a theory that has some more explanatory power and more generalizability. And just as an example, I think I think there is some. You're you're putting information in your experiments with the boundary conditions. So let's say that you could quantify that in some way, and you could say I put a certain set of constraints on my experiment. Then you know how much information you put in and how much information you get out from the experiment, and that tells you something about how much the physics is actually doing or the chemistry is doing that you are not putting in the system. But we don't think about designing origins of life experiments that way. We don't think about us as intelligent agents, biological agents, observers in the universe, manipulating the system. And we're trying to study it in the same ways that we have studied physical systems in the past that don't have observers and where that doesn't matter. But in biology, it intimately matters that we are information processing systems started trying to study the origin of information processing systems and putting information and selection into those systems to study their origin. It really matters. Um, and to the, the one final point I was going to make, um, I think I got through my list, um, is just that this also, um, you know, there was a note about solving the historical origins of life. And that's certainly a really interesting and important problem <clears throat> understanding ourselves. Um, but there is also other tractable ways of thinking about the origins of life as a general process. And this comes more from artificial life and messy chemistry type approaches where you're not so constrained about understanding the conditions of life on earth, but you ask, how is it that non-living chemical systems can transition to living systems? And I think interfacing between people that are thinking that space and people that are thinking about early earth history is really important for moving the field forward because there are some questions you can ask in those systems you just can't yeah. ask of early earth. I, mean, I, I think they overlap quite a lot insofar as yeah. if, you, if you think about why is life this particular way on earth, you also have to ask the question, well, why wasn't it that way? Could it have been this other way? Or is there some physical reason why it's not actually that way? It, 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 is it all kind of funneled in a particular direction from a particular starting point? Or are there, you know, lots of different possible ways in which life might start and lots of lots of kind of different definitions, if you like, of, of, of life? I, I don't really know. I mean, the more I think about life on Earth, the more I, I, I find it slightly uncanny that um, a, a lot of metabolic biochemistry as we know it uh, is coming out in experiments that people are doing with all the provisos of the boundary conditions that you were saying. But it's, it's remarkable that a lot of biochemical pathways that we think of as being controlled by information, by genes, by enzymes that are, that are catalyzing each step happen spontaneously without any of those things, not in exactly the same way, but startlingly close to it, um, simply because really of thermodynamics and kinetics. But these are favored pathways. And it depends on your starting point. And the starting point for me is CO2 and hydrogen. And that's basically what life does now. If you start somewhere else, you might start with cyanide or, you know, there's lots of good um, prebiotic chemistry starting in other places. Um, but again, it seems to end up with the same set of um, intermediates. Again, I, I find it slightly uncanny that we keep ending up in the same place. It reminds me of the... Um, the, the anthropogenic principle of the, the cosmological constants being finely tuned to to allow for the existence of stars and so on. It's, it seems remarkable to me that that this same biochemistry just falls out of thermodynamics. I'm not reading anything into that. It's just unsettling. Wow. I mean, I think uh, that's a great place to pause and move on from that sort of question of what is life. Um, summarized by Nick there as uh, unsettling and uncanny, <laughs> which I am I'm quite, I'm quite <laughs> interested in. 
Um, and, and sort of moving on to the second theme of this, this conversation that I, uh, we wanted to raise, which is sort of what are the biggest gaps in our understanding of, of how life emerged on Earth? And of course, all of you have slightly touched on this already. But, you know, we have to bear in mind that the origin of life research that we see today forms actually quite a relatively young field of, of inquiry. And these sort of research projects have only really taken off in their sort of current scientific form, it has to be said, in the second half of the 20th century, right? So, um, you know, for a long time, this question of how life emerged just seemed like too difficult to answer pretty much, right? You know, there's clearly, evidently, even in this conversation, plenty that we still don't have answers to. And I'm going to ask Sarah to address that question first up as we go into this next little bit. Sarah. I, I mean, I think based on what I said before, my answer is going to be obvious, which we don't know, like the principles that govern life. And if we don't know what life is, it's very hard to say, how does it originate? Um, but also, I think asking the early Earth question is, is maybe um, harder than asking the general question in some ways, as far as interfacing ideas from how we can think about it theoretically to how we can think about it experimentally. Um, and so, so for me, the real gap is, um, well, the, the gap that the field has is between like, we can make simple molecules prebiotically like amino acids or nucleic acids. And then we can reach, we can trace, um, you know, life as we know it back in time to the properties of a last universal common ancestor, um, which is, you know, the ancestor of all life on earth. And it was, you know, a community of cells that inhabited the earlier earth, but that had a lot of the cellular machinery to use what Dan was saying about, we talked about biology in terms of machines, a lot of that machinery was in place at the last universal common ancestor. There's a there's huge gap in complexity from simple molecules to um, LUCA. Um, and the challenge I have in the original life field, um, and I, I've had like my entire career because I came in, um, you know, as a cosmologist, um, you know, just starting to go to these original life meetings and, and talking to chemists, um, is that, you know, the field has been predominantly chemists. And I think there's a lot of really good work done there. But for the standard prebiotic chemistry experiment, the standard original life experiment, success is uh, making a molecule. It is not making a living thing. And I think just the standards of what we need to ask when we're asking original life questions and original life hypotheses really need to be tackling that question head on. And they're just not universally across the board right now. And part of the reason is because that question is so hard. But we've been doing for almost 100 years now since O'Parin and Haldane first came up with the prebiotic soup hypothesis or the primordial soup hypothesis, original life experiments where we expect simple chemical mixtures to spontaneously complexify and, and evolve, and then that will solve the problem. And I just feel like that's an inadequate explanation and we can spend another hundred years trying to do that or we can ask the hard questions. Um, so that's my perspective on it. Dan, you look like you had something to say. Sometimes people are confronted with some hypothesis about how the prebiotic chemistry works. And, and they say, well, but that would never happen in a million years, which the answer is, how about 2 million? How about 10 million? Um, it's very hard to think about such long periods of time when things can happen. Uh, <clears throat> David Deutsch has a wonderful uh, talk about the great monotony and how for billions of years there was not much, there wasn't much chemistry being done. Uh, and then when life starts, chemistry just takes off and it changes changes the whole planet and it creates the atmosphere it, it it changes the it adds all of these complex molecules that just 
don't otherwise exist. Now, um, when you have to have, have billions of years to make something happen, obviously you can't, you can't do experiments in the lab about it. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to think about what, what it could be. And so I'm not uh, pessimistic about our capacity to answer the questions about life. Uh, I think this is the golden age for asking these questions because we now have uh, perspectives on this. And one of the main features of the perspective, I, I guess this is a sort of broken record for me, I always want to bring this up, is it's reverse engineering. Uh, the simplest, simplest, simplest thing that could live is a fantastic machine with many parts that play functional roles that are essential. And so you have to think about this in terms of reverse engineering. Uh, and if you look carefully at what people write, how the experiments they do, they're all doing it. Uh, there's still, however, some uh, sort of bad faith about it in that a lot of people still think they're not supposed to do that. That this is, this is uh, engineering design way is to, is to give a hostage to the uh, intelligent design crowd, to the anti-Darwinian crowd. No, not at all. Uh, what we just have to understand is that the way design got started is with evolution. And then evolution designed designers. Mm -hmm. And the designers designed designers. And now we, we're the small i, d, intelligent designers who can look back on the whole process and figure out how it started. Pretty interesting. Sarah, can you, do you want to comment quickly before? Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to just make a, a quick comment. So, so both um, Nick and Dan have made a, what I think is an assumption that some of the chemical processes take millions of years. And I don't oh, think I we do that. I would so. disagree with that, actually. I, yeah, I, okay, I but, that, but I, I make one more? Can, um, I just want to make one other quick point, which is about um, Dan's point about this explosion of chemical complexity that biology did. And I just want to point out that there's another transitioning happening now because of technology, that there's a lot of chemistry that can happen because we have chemists in the lab that could never happen in the many billion year history of the evolution of life on Earth. So some future, you know, AI or civilization on Earth might look back at all of biological chemical evolution as a boring, monotonous phase and say, well, all this stuff's <laughs> Discovery got in, are invented after the digitization of chemistry, and we built AIs that can explore chemical space faster than we can. So I think thinking about these things as events that happened in the past and not transitions that are still happening um, is is something that we need to be aware of. And the timescales for that transition in technology might be really interesting and relevant in in very different ways to thinking about the origins of life, um, which is an abstract connection to make. But I think it's actually there's a real connection in terms of chemistry and, and evolution. Go ahead. Sorry, Nick. Yeah, uh, well, I haven't actually had a, a go at the question yet, but um, yeah. going back to what you were saying before, Sarah, you, you, you said, and I agree with you completely, that chemists especially, but I mean, to my mind, the origin of life is a question in chemistry. You think, what experiment are you going to do? And in the end, it's a, question, it's, it's an, it's a chemistry experiment that you do. 
uh, at least to try and understand how life here started. Um, and, and, and you then kind of said, well, it just explains how you get molecules. And I agree with that as well. And it's not the answer. Uh, but then you dismissed everything else as now we need to look for a more fundamental principle. Well, I don't agree with that because how I imagine, I mean, I think what, what Shannon Entropy either leaves out or certainly de-emphasizes is chemistry, which is to say chemistry is full of interactions between molecules based on charge or hydrophobicity or whatever it, else it may be. And that gives you immediately structure. And that structure, well, it, it releases energies, heat, um, it, it increases the entropy of the universe, but the self-organization of cells is basically, you know, they're not a particularly low entropy state, actually. Um, they, they form spontaneously because of the laws of chemistry. Now, if, you, if what you imagine is not just an experiment where you put a few things in a test tube and mix them up and see what you get out, that's a static experiment. If you imagine a hydrothermal vent where you have a continuous flow, a continuous reactivity, continuously forming, let's say, fatty acids, which are spontaneously self-organizing into bilayer membranes and which are capable of growing themselves and copying themselves, it's a far more dynamic system that I have in mind. And I can't duplicate that in the lab, but I can imagine it in my head and I can try and... <laughs> I can try and pull bits out and say, well, we could do an experiment on this bit or on that bit. Uh, you know, uh, we, I think it's, we're limited by the imagination. And I think the imagination can capture um, how a dynamical system like the Earth, given the rules of chemistry that we know, can lead to the processes of growth. And I think heredity is a, basically a subset of growth. Um, and heredity, the molecules, the genes are arising within this growing system from the beginning and affecting, influencing the outcome. So I personally can imagine how these things fit together. That's a far cry from it being true. And, and it's very difficult to demonstrate any of that. And you know, another point that, that, that Dan mentioned a while ago is how do we know it started on earth? It could have come from space and absolutely it could have done. We have no idea, but science is based on Occam's razor. Uh, which is to say, let's start with the simplest assumption. And in that sense, science is grounded in assumptions. It's not grounded in facts. It's grounded in the assumption that the world might be this way. Let's assume it is and do some experiments. And that's what we're assuming with the origin of life. I'm going to assume, and that's all it is, it's an assumption that it started on Earth here in a set of conditions that we can do some experiments and see if they will take us to the answer. And, it, you know, I, I think we have to be to have the to, to get out of bed in the morning and do the experiments and believe it's possible we have to be biased and partisan to our own theories and i think we also have to try and be scientists which is to say acknowledge when we're wrong acknowledge when the experiments don't work acknowledge where the limitations are and when a theory runs aground um but but i i think conceptually it's not as hard as i think you're making it out to be personally so I'm gonna I'm gonna take that moment and say that that's a really good um, point to to shift onto our third theme with. You all seem to have different opinions on this, but how how do our theories need to change to be able to solve the origin of life? Nick, I feel like you're basically saying they don't need to change. They all they will change by virtue of what we do as we try and explain life. Um, but, you know, you should tell us what you actually think of that. So Okay, I'll be brief because I've just been talking. But um, I, I, I think that we have a lot, I mean, Dan, Dan mentioned there's a lot of competing hypotheses. 
and most of them don't really try and think through everything. So I think what we're really missing is an overall conceptual roadmap, if you like, from, from prebiotic chemistry right the way through to the molecular machines of cells and, and LUCA. And, and I completely agree with Sarah. The level of complexity in that is enormous. Um, and, and we have to break it down into, you know, what's the simplest molecular machine that you can imagine? What's the simplest functional protein? I mean, to, to my mind, you, you know, you introduce, for example, a, a metal ion and a peptide, and it will fish, you know, physical chemistry interactions again will tend to give you the active site of enzymes because enzymes are physical chemistry objects. Um, and we can understand that in terms of quantum chemistry, or we can understand it in terms of just chemistry in the lab. And, you know, there's levels of analysis of what's going on there. But the bottom line is what I expect, which may not be true, is that, for example, the RNA polymerase enzyme, it's a magnesium dependent enzyme, and it's always aspartate binds to the magnesium. So why not just start out with aspartate and magnesium? Well, I've tried that. We've tried that in the lab. And actually, if you just have the amino acid in solution, it doesn't work. But now what about a small peptide? You know, there's so many experiments that you can do that may or may not work. Conceptually, it should be that way. In practice, it may turn out that it's not that way. So I think the, I don't think we're really missing a theory so much as we're missing meaningful data and we're missing a way of putting all that data together so that we can understand it and we're missing really an, an, an overall conception of how it might be that we can put this data together in a meaningful way and begin to see where are the gaps you know again it's, it's probable that Sarah's right that there are big gaps in there that turn out that the experiments don't support my position um, that there aren't any gaps in effect um, I, you know I, I, I don't doubt that I'm wrong about a lot but um, I think I have to believe that I'm right about a lot. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't be trying to answer the problem. Final thing I'll say is chemistry happens quickly. If it doesn't happen now, everything disperses and disappears. Uh, and so, again, think of a hydrothermal vent. I think the time scale to be thinking about is nanoseconds, not millions of years. I think we're looking at interactions immediately and continuously and sustained maybe over millions of years. But how long does it need? I think we pull out millions because we know the Earth is millions of years old. But, you know, why would we study it in the lab? Well, because I think we can. It should happen in seconds. Uh, and so, again, it's, a, it's, it's an assumption that may turn out not be, to be true, but at least it means you can go and do the experiments. Here, Nick, is where I think uh, you and I may have a disagreement. And uh, okay. you're, you're on much stronger ground than I am, but that doesn't stop me. Uh, uh, it seems to me to be a mistake to think that the first reproducing thing was simple. Uh, Luca was breathtakingly efficient. And Luca's ancestors, of which there were who knows how many zillions, uh, were also quite efficient, but probably less efficient. And it, until you get reproduction going, how long it takes for a, for a bunch of stuff to reproduce doesn't really matter because there's no competition. Suppose the first, and every, everybody agrees, I think, that for evolution, for Darwinian evolution to occur, there has to be reproduction. That is the whole key. But 
The first reproduction events might be events which don't even look like reproduction to us unless you squint just right. <laughs> they, they're Rube Goldberg machines, maybe millions of times less efficient than the eventual brilliant hot rod uh, supercar <laughs> replicators that we get uh, in simple cells. Uh, it doesn't matter if, if they can make copies of themselves, even if it takes a million years, that, that gives you the first ratchet, the first step up for evolution. So it seems to me that's a, a prospect to look at because it allows that even the idea of reproduction can come in in a sort of gradual way. We can have things that sort of reproduce if you look at them just right, and that is enough to get reproduction off the ground. I hate to, to put a peg in that. So just with the last minute, Sarah, could you, could you give us your sort of headline answer essentially to, you know, how do you think that our theories need to change uh, to be able to solve the actual origin of life? Well, I, I think that uh, Nick used a nice word that we need a conceptual roadmap. And I think that's sort of at the level that I'm thinking of it is like, what is that roadmap and, and how do we actually explain the whole big picture? And I've been talking very abstractly and theoretically um, most of it, but just to give kind of a concrete, um, you know, sort of chemical type of thing connected to geochemistry, which is something, you know, Nick has been Posing, is that a lot of times you think about that as a local thing, but there's also a lot of evidence with the very citric acid cycle that Nick has been talking about that origins of life might be more of like a planetary scale transition because it's so tightly coupled to geochemical cycles. And even in my own work, I think um, we have some evidence that the last universal common ancestor might have planetary, like have been a planetary scale transition. So I think it's also, it's not just the issue of even when we're asking the chemical origins of life, what scale are we talking about? Did the origin of life happen at the scale of what we would call an ecosystem now from which individuals emerge? Is it a planetary scale phenomena? Um, and basically what I've been trying to do um, with this sort of informational approach is build something that is sufficiently deep and descriptive enough to account for a lot of the different narratives that people have about life. And I think that's where we need to get because everybody has a correct piece of the puzzle. It's just that we don't know how to put those together yet. And there should be a theory that really encompasses all of the features that we actually have observed because that's what we need to explain. Um, and for me, that that idea of in physics of information is really the best uh, framework that we have currently. May, may I ask, do you really think everyone has a correct piece of the puzzle? Because it seems to me some people must just be wrong, and that may well be me. But um, we can't uh, well, all be right, I, surely. Yeah, I think um, by the nature of the way that we ask scientific questions, no one's ever fully wrong. There's always something that's partially right, and it's just extracting what are the part, like the partial truths, and then assembling them into a real truth. So I think of uh, like doing science a little bit like a mosaic. Every mind has a little bit of an insight into how reality works, and what we're trying to do is figure out from that collection of minds which pieces are actually coming together to build the right truth. I think a, a good ending point there, basically. Truth, truth seems to be context-dependent from what's there. It is there. very context-dependent, yeah. So I have to say thank you so, so much to all three of you for, for joining us this afternoon. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. 